0: Good evening everybody and um, thank you for coming uh, this evening to this discussion that we're hosting in partnership with ASCII, continuing the series of events that we're doing over the course of the next few years. Um, My name is James Frame, I'm Director of Policy here at Policy Exchange. Um, some of you uh, will know Jonathan Simons who's supposed to be hosting this evening uh, but he is currently, uh, Sunny can't make it so I'm, I'm stepping in for this evening. Um, uh, he will be watching on live stream which I'll explain in a moment. And so firstly then on logistics, so for those people that want to tweet, uh, the hashtag is going to be keyxknowledge uh, and then uh, with the help of Cambridge Assessment we're going to be periscoping, so live streaming uh, this evening's event, uh, and people following on Twitter uh, can basically access that live stream by going to Cambridge Assessment page and clicking the link. Um, so I think the size of the audience here uh, tonight really reflects the interest that there is in the subject. Um, and also uh, in the great quality of the guests that we've got this evening, that, that Gerard will introduce in the moment. Um, so the issue of knowledge in the curriculum, so what young people should be expected to know when is becoming um, a central part of the education debate And something which is becoming increasingly interesting for us here at College of Change. So it's increasingly clear that uh, the debate that we're going to have around structures is going to continue for the foreseeable future. Um, it would have been uh, it was possible that that debate was going to uh, to go to bed. It would seem that that's going to run on for, for, for the simple future. And um, it looks like increasingly the debate around education is going to be focused much more on um, what actually gets taught in schools, rather well than just on the structures. So that, to us, I think, is incredibly welcome. Um, there'll be a division, no doubt, amongst us all on what the right structure should be. I personally would welcome. Um, uh, different structure would we also welcome a, a, a knowledge-based approach in the classroom. But regardless of the approach that we take and uh, regardless of um, you know, which way the debate goes on uh, knowledge, I think it's going to be fantastic for parents and teachers across the country if there is um, a serious issue that takes place far and above the heads of ordinary parents. Um, you know, whether or not schools are free school or academy is, is much less interesting to what their, their child actually gets taught. So if we have a, a proper national debate on this, I think that going kind of be good for, uh, for the debate, um, I just realized, I should have said at the very outset, that I'm just, I'm just doing the intro tonight. It will be, it will be chaired by Jeremy um, But just before I pass over to Gerard, um, some of you will know we hosted a very interesting event with Edie Hirsch, who's one of the leading uh, proponents of knowledge-based curriculums, back in the room. Uh, and I'd also like to just say uh, a couple of thank yous Again, thank you to school for their support tonight and also for the TAS uh, for their support. Uh, and with that, uh, can I pass over to Gerald and ask you to give him a, a welcome to <laughs>
1: thank, you thank you. And this evening, sir, as James, now I suspect I'm probably the only person in the room who was pretty clueless about alpha knowledge before I came, did a little bit of reading about it. I thought it was something to do James Fonda, but it turns out it's a bit more sad perhaps in our schools. And I suppose the big issues um, are around power knowledge are uh, basically what is it, why is it important, and why is it so contested? And to help us answer those questions, I'm delighted to um, uh, uh, introduce Professor Michael Young, Tim Oates, and Caroline Roberts. Professor Young is Emeritus Professor of Education at the Institute of Education and one of the foremost academics in the UK on curriculum design. He is author of Knowledge on Future School, which argues for powerful knowledge for all pupils as a curriculum principle for any school, arguing that the question of knowledge is intimately linked to the issue of social justice and that access to powerful knowledge is a necessary component of the education of all pupils. Tim is the director of the assessment, research and development (coughs) at Cambridge Assessment, she has advised the UK government for many years on curriculum and assessment policy, including chairing the expert panel that reviewed the national curriculum between 2010 and 2013. Caroline Roberts has a proper job. She's the head teacher at Thomas Tallis School in London and Askwell Honorary Secretary. She's the co author, of Michael Young, of Knowledge and the Future of School. So the format for the, uh, this evening is pretty straightforward. Uh, Michael's going to talk for 15 minutes about uh, powerful knowledge. Uh, then I will then interview them and ask them a few questions, and then we'll throw the um, <coughs> session open to the audience. So with that,
2: Michael, over to you. Thank you very much, Just Thanks to Pulse Exchange and, indeed, the Association of the School and College Leaders. Uh, not only the for law, but establishing this event, both organisations, I think, uh, um, played a big role in actually bringing something that hasn't always been on the educational agenda across the education community onto it. Um, and uh, for inviting me to contribute. Um, I would like to say that I can't think of anybody else who I would rather have on the panel I was sharing. I uh, feel very grateful. And I'm sure by the end of the evening I should feel the same about the audience. there, uh, yeah, that's a promise for you. <laughs> um, My thing is just slightly different from the uh, the title. I want to talk about a powerful knowledge curriculum make it for all. And the small difference is important to me for two reasons. First, many schools offer a version of powerful knowledge for some or even all of their students. The difficult pedagogic and political issues arise when the principle is extended to all pupils. Secondly, the idea of powerful knowledge for all reminds us that the argument is not just about the curriculum, that it's an argument about social justice. So why is the idea of powerful knowledge captured the... was involved in actually coining the phrase uh, in the first place, expected. And secondly, why has, this, has the idea divided people so sharply across party political lines? And I gave a talk in about 2011. It was somewhat strange that here's Michael Young, a lifelong Labour voter, who was speaking as if he was one of Michael Gove's speechwriters, people who do, I'm sure. But nevertheless, it symbolises, I think, the issue. If you accept the idea that there is better knowledge in any form of inquiry, then this knowledge must be an entitlement for all pupils. How could anyone, for instance, how could anyone in a democratic society not want the best knowledge we have to be the basis for a curriculum for all. Where, in fact, they had 18 different curricula for different types of pupil uh, and different departments and so forth. And that was frightening and disastrous. Um, despite that, many of those on the, what I might call the educational left and what I believe Michael Gove used to say called the blog, actually see the idea of powerful knowledge uh, as masking the elitist origins of the academic curriculum and therefore in fact perpetuating inequalities. I'll come back to that a little bit later. I want to start though by outlining what I see as the principles for any curriculum and how they relate to the idea of powerful knowledge. <coughs> First, all curricula organise knowledge very differently from our everyday knowledge, the knowledge that pupils bring to school they're different in terms of the structure of knowledge and in terms of its purposes. Our everyday knowledge is tied to contexts with which we're familiar and need in order to live without each other in a society to solve the daily problems we have. Curriculum is very different, it's different in structure, it has distinct boundaries and rules which act as constraints on what we know, it's different in purpose. Unlike everyday knowledge, the curriculum doesn't treat the world as an extension of our experience. It treats the world as an object of inquiry, it treats the concepts of curriculum as an object of inquiry, and therefore potentially a source of knowledge. Take the city, for example. London children know much about their city. And, however, this knowledge is quite different to the knowledge of cities that a geography teacher knows. It simply extends it in ways that most children would find impossible. They didn't go to school. It's the same for literature, history, astronomy, you name know, it, any, I think, of the academic subjects. We can contrast the everyday knowledge which is particular and tied to pupils' experience on the one hand with the knowledge they acquire at school which takes them beyond that experience and up to the power of powerful knowledge and it's expressed in very different ways in different subjects, whether we talk about maths or about dance, okay, to might be seen as extremes. So access to powerful knowledge based in the structure and the content of subjects means pupils are not trapped by the limits of their experience. That, in a sense, think, is the rationale for why we have schools. However, the power of powerful knowledge to generalize, to predict, to envisage possibilities, to, as sociologist Basil Burns said, to to uh, imagine uh, the unthought and the not yet thought has its downside it is alien to many pupils and for some hard to acquire that's why with the best of intentions curriculum developments going back into the 70s and the schools council to the Royal Society of Arts more recently have tried to develop curricula that they hoped would be less alien for low achievers they assumed that the subject based academic curriculum was only suitable for a small section of each cohort. In other words, it was in some way intrinsically lead to stand discrimination. The issue they did not consider was that the consequence for those who followed courses which lacked the conceptual content of the mainstream curriculum could not be a resource for enabling students to generalize or progress in their learning. This was as if there was real science for some, but only for some. I think that looking back at it, they address the low-achievement <coughs> problem as a curriculum problem of what to teach, when, though difficult, they should have addressed it as a pedagogic problem. This differentiation of curricula has been associated with two kinds of assumptions. One is the ability, the distribution of the ability to engage in academic subjects, innate and unequally distributed. Therefore, we have, have a differentiated curriculum. The other is the belief, expressed rather evocatively, by the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, that in fact the curriculum itself is essentially arbitrary and a form of symbolic violence on many kids. And therefore its content is that it tend to favour the first explanation, those on the left uh, tend to favour the second. But they come curiously together by providing rationale that nothing can change. The idea of powerful knowledge implies, I think, a very different view of both knowledge and of human nature. First, that knowledge is not arbitrary, and it's not just tied to the interests of those with power. It's tied to the rules and norms, especially specialist community. Secondly, we have no grounds for claiming that some human beings are born with limited ability to acquire proper knowledge. I find the alternative preferable for the drawing on the French Alicor, because his argument is that all human beings are born with a desire for knowledge. It's societies that differentiate knowledge and people. This is, of course, not to deny that in an unequal society, the wealthy have the resources to ensure that their children have access to public knowledge. Unequally. Last week, I received an email, quite out of the blue, from a teacher I did not know, who was a special needs coordinator in an academy in, north, in the north of England. She wrote to me and I'm paraphrasing what she said. She said, I'm reading your book, Knowledge in the Future School, and at our school we are working in line with its ideas, in particular the idea of powerful knowledge for all. She noted, interestingly, that in our book we make no reference to special needs at all. The curriculum per school (coughs) she wrote is based on the principle that, that there is better knowledge, which is a right of all children, but to have a curriculum that's differentiated by types of children, whether defined in terms of disabilities or any other attributes such as social class, only perpetuates inequalities. She ended her email by saying, "We have no SEN or inclusion department, no withdrawal from timetable, and no alternative pathways with less powerful knowledge-based courses." I know nothing other than the emails I got. From about the school for the teacher, although she writes an extremely interesting blog, which I can anybody in touch with uh, if they want to. However, I was deeply moved by reading this email. Until I received it, I'd always thought that addressing the special needs issue was the weak link in the powerful knowledge argument. And now I realise, guess somebody was telling me that it may be the basis for dealing i for a moment want to play down pedagogic challenges that the idea of a the knowledge for all presents to teachers or to imply that it is some easy, quick-fit solution to raising attainment. The distribution of school access, success and failure is related to much wider issues of social inequality and access to resources, particularly how specialist subject teachers are distributed. Furthermore, acquiring new knowledge is always difficult. And for some more difficult than others and actually convincing students that it's worth the difficulty is one of the problems that teachers face. Furthermore and this is a criticism of the community I come from of educational researchers we know little about how best to structure knowledge to make it more accessible. The sociologist Basil Bernstein suggested and I think rightly three questions about subjects. One, he asked, how is it selected? Two, he asked, how is it sequenced? Three, he asked, how is it placed in the terms and the years of schooling? Now, these I think are all important questions. The amount of research on them is next to zero. And unfortunately, the Educational uh, Endowment Foundation, with its devotion to randomized controlled child trials, is not at the moment showing any signs of being a I hope things will change. Okay. Um, what I suggested earlier, just, excuse me, what I suggested earlier was that in fact the assumption that all human beings are born with a desire for knowledge. You not think that must be a basic assumption for us, because in fact even bringing up children, less assumption about young people. The but the idea of the desire for knowledge immediately implied that a not a notion of knowledge that isn't something that we normally, that we find or even lists of concepts although both are very important it is a relationship between knowers and know, knowledge and knowers now what I think is interesting so this relationship has, has, has been a feature of all societies but has been transformed in from how we actually think about knowledge and education one way it's been transformed is the Emergence and expansion of what I call specialist communities of inquiry. In every field, this has led to a massive growth of knowledge quite could not have remotely been predicted at the beginning of the, of the 19th century. Uh, there's a great book by which I happen to pick up, because I'm not a historian, by David Wooden called The Invention of Science. I do recommend it. What he documents is that, at least in the Western world, it was not until the 16th century <laughs> that people realized that there could be new knowledge. It's quite something, actually, that. Uh, the other development, and the, and the other thing which I found intriguing about book, is that the, the, the real breakthrough was not Galileo and new. <laughs> the real breakthrough was, in fact, people discovering the, the Americas. Because suddenly people realized you could do something, and out of what you did, you got new knowledge. It is a great book. I do recommend. The relationship between knowledge <coughs> about the relationship to knowledge and nurse is the expansion and specialisation of pedagogy. Because that's in a sense what we're simply concerned with here, we're concerned with in the uh, relation to the curriculum. And, the, and uh, this is, of course, an exercise in the transmission of knowledge from generation to generation. But it becomes an ever more complex issue because as, in fact, research expands we get much more research, the question of the relationship, what Bernstein calls the recontextualization of knowledge, of new knowledge key process. And as it has become more complex, we seem, if anything, to do less research on how to engage with I read a biography recently of Matthew Arnold, uh, and um, I suddenly realized that it was not so very different. When art, when Matthew Arnold, he turns the ancient issues of researchers in the universities, because it's, it's that relationship that underpins the authority that we can claim for subjects in the school curriculum. Finally, powerful knowledge is not just a curriculum principle; it is also very much a pedagogic principle. And I think it's akin to the idea of justice for lawyers. It defines what it is to be a teacher. Whether to, whether we refer reports, selecting text, responding to questions in time in class, in each of these you have, you need to ask the question: In what way does my response? To you? That's something we don't to do. It's not about control, although maybe control is involved. It's not about bringing the community in. It's about are we extending knowledge? Because that is what is distinctive about what is distinctive about school. For the most part, we trust the professional world of teachers, just as we trust that of doctors and lawyers. Uh, trust is easy for, maybe easy for you and me, but it's not so easy for governments. And those, they turn to what can crudely be described as industrial models of standardisation, their lack of trust. However, what works for mass production has its limits. The desire for knowledge cannot be standardised and only weakly interpreted from test results. Part knowledge and not a short-term goal. And it has implications across the education system, as I've already begun to think about. We've had, discussion, had discussions with Christine about high impact upon leadership, absolutely critically, on the role of heads and heads of departments, all kinds of things like that Uh, that in a sense it it works its way through because if if you don't think about it in those terms then it will become some little technical job with people picking up a few extra facts. Uh, Furthermore, if what one reads from the predictions of economists about the kind of work future a country like ours had, then we have no alternative but take that question of knowledge, very, not that question of powerful knowledge for all, very, very seriously indeed. Thank
3: you. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Tim, Yes, thank you. And, and um, tonight's not going to be an evening of radical <laughs> dreams, I think, um, from mm-hmm. my part, uh, in respect of what Michael said is proposing and has proposed a whole series of very, very important papers. Children no longer need to remember things. Uh, 21st century schools must be the foundation of all contemporary curriculum. I've heard all of those things recently, uh, many of them repeated. The trouble with those statements is that they fly in the face of modern epistemic theory. And they fly in the face of empirical evidence regarding equity and high attainment of education. They sound modern, don't they? There are odds for the best science that we have regarding the structure and form of knowledge, and there are lots for a curriculum which ignores core content, core constructs. This is a key part of some of Michael's core content and disciplines. Makes that curriculum more, not less prone to arbitrary, and ideologically, counterintuitive and implication of Michael's analysis. If you want a lot of politically driven intervention full of contemporary stuff, I'll leave you with that. A few more points. And the thesis of powerful knowledge is the the erroneous contradiction, the false opposition of knowledge and skills. Now, why have knowledge and skills been constructed as an opposition with paper, in argument after argument? What's going on that people assert this? Well, I'm afraid my conclusion is I think this, this opposition... Is, has been appropriated for internal purposes of internal conflicts in the education community. It's about which people can they can fight over it. And it's caused a polarization in the debate, which is entirely at odds with the kind of bodies of theory which I've described, and has been very, very counterproductive. So if I was John White, of course I'm not, then I'd be really attacking Michael because he's failing to Articulate that hegemonic relationships are under the defence of Michael. It's the distributional issues about knowledge who has it, who has access to it should not be confused with the value of specific knowledge. And John's thesis confuses those two things. He confuses who said something and who's created the knowledge with what the content of that knowledge actually is. Now, I'm not being naive, I, of course, knowledge is value laden. Of course, it's created under certain conditions. Of course, people create some knowledge and not other knowledge, and there are choices in that, and those are determined by the economic and political circumstances of the time in which that knowledge is created. But to confuse the two things, again, is to fly in the face of what we know about modern epistemic theory. Knowledge is external to us, and that sounds very odd, because it is knowledge of the world. And to confuse the authority of the teacher with the authority of the knowledge to which they give action. The quality of knowledge of the natural world should not be confused with the qualities of the person who originates it. And that's one of the problems with John's thesis. I know knowledge of the social domain is a bit more problematic. I think the same thing applies. I can go into the detail of critical realism, but I won't. First of all, Quickly, constructivism is a theory of mind, not a model of curriculum. But it gave rise to discovery learning, and it gave rise to individualised learning, of forms which have been very dysfunctional in our education system. Michael's work brings us to a very important insight that a lot of the knowledge and the learning at school is counterintuitive to young people. It's contrary to their lived experience, and the distinctiveness of these hard-won scientific concepts needs to be addressed in the curriculum. They are difficult to acquire because they are counterintuitive. Yeah, the one looks pretty flat to me. I know that cholera is caused the majority of what we ask people to acquire whilst at school is counterintuitive to their lived experience. It's tough. So there's theoretical opposition, this false non-induced powerful knowledge because there's not enough space in the curriculum. So of course people are arguing for skills, have tried to find space. And they've rendered a lot of knowledge, very, very generic and therefore pretty useless. So to which aren't in the the, the exegesis we heard this evening. there are absurd notions of remembering and moving things into long-term memory and remembering them frees up the working memory. It makes education far more efficient and do more higher order thinking if they actually remember things. They need to remember concepts, principles, fundamental operations and core knowledge. reading's a skill. writing's a skill. Observation and recording in science is a skill. Observation in science is theory. Few oppositions are absurd. Of course, balances can be explored in education. Value, values and knowledge are always components of effective performance. Many breakdowns <clears> in skill can be traced to breakdowns in underpinning knowledge. The final thing is this, in the same institution that Michael works in the Institute of Education John Bunner and Tom Schuller have done fantastic, they've seen that the kind of things which Michael is advocating in Powerful Knowledge are explanatory of later life success. Of course they are alongside things which John calls personal capital, (coughs) the ability to communicate with others, the ability to organise information and so on. The final, final point, and it really is, is this, it really, it really is this, to anybody managing a curriculum, if you believe in powerful knowledge, if you believe in the exegesis and you look at the a national curriculum, if you believe in powerful knowledge and core content of specific disciplines, you don't change your national curriculum every ten years, not all of it, you refine it as human knowledge evolves. And I assure you, the major paradigms in all the major disciplines, geography, history, biology, core elements of other disciplines, change far less frequently than most people argue. And that schools are just crying out for in terms of producing
1: effective learning which gives people access to pathologies. Final finance from you. I'm,
4: I'm going to speak standing up. <laughs> um, yeah. exactly. Often, when a uh, when head teacher talks in these discussions, they talk from a position of being able to mould a school entirely. And so, the first, um, the first one was a rebranded school, it was a new school, but it was a rebranded school. And so, I started a new school with, that had been in the failing schools before. So when we talk about new schools, we don't always talk about starting schools within only one year of uh, And that was a very successful, big, comprehensive school, a real comprehensive school, um, given its place in the world by the <laughs> moment, um, and could only be described as a confident school, a very successful school, a very sought-after school. And I spent my um, nine years as head there doing various things, and one of the things that I did um, was to get people to think about the foundations for the... How curriculum and what the curriculum really meant us a while ago, those of us who'd been headed school, what it was that we were really pleased about in the time that we'd been head. the thing of 13, when the local authority were really keen for results to go like school by any standards, where the results were going like that, but other schools' results were going like that. And that's a really difficult position to be for us at that time. And it was incidentally to to bolster my support against the honest that I used to do lunch duty sitting at the back of the boys' gym, reading Michael's book page by page every day to to, 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 to give me ways of arguing about what we were going to do in in, 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 the future. The third school where I've been here, this is my third year now, um, is a very interesting school. Uh, Once again, a a really large conference. One of them is a very long, uh, 40-year... Commitment to creativity and the arts in a really big way, a very successful way. And the other aspect of it is the way that the um, the way that the accountability measures of the last few years have undermined that school's success and that school's co-curriculum. And I spent the last two and a half years, and I will spend the next five years, rebuilding that co-curriculum in order to make sure that children get solid learning long-term learning and learning which will enable them to make them more successful lives in the future. So when someone asked me just before we started here um, what does a powerful knowledge curriculum in school look like? You, do you run your school on a powerful knowledge curriculum? Well the answer is yes but it's, but it's a hell of a lot harder than it sounds. And so what I do is bearing in mind that Hirsch said that the curriculum was about protecting and preserving de- 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 democracy what I do is to try and put together principles upon which a solid and sustainable school is based and I've got ten principles but I won't go through or, or, or through, through all of them and this is what we work on at school it's what we worked on in my last school it's what we were feeling our way towards in our first school which is that knowledge is worthwhile in itself and so children ought to ought to know of that that schools share powerful knowledge on behalf of society. So we we teach them what they need to know to make sense of and to improve the world. They need that knowledge in order to interpret and improve the world. It enables them to grow into useful citizens. Fair and just that all children should have to this kind of learning and this kind of <laughs> the debate that Michael's been having with the CENCO is a really useful one. And it's a, it's a debate I've been having for two years with the special needs department in, in my current school. And then to just pick up something that Tim said at the very end there. Adult authority is really important in this. There's a lot of the context of the knowledge and skills de- debate and the curricula of the past 10 or 15 years in which the impact of student Behaviour has been underplayed on what happened to the curriculum. So it's really important that schools are model communities in which teachers are valued and children can learn within a stable environment. So pedagogy links adult authority, powerful knowledge, and our sharing of it in the world. And so finally, I used to do an annual lecture for PGCE students at the University of Northumbria, uh, and it was on the National Curriculum, I did it for years and years, so I became quite familiar with the way that the National Curriculum changed every year, so I had to do new slides every year because it was always changing But one of the things which I talked about a lot was one of the early values of the National Curriculum which was that it was a curriculum that that was that tended towards a just and sustainable de- democracy. And that seemed to me to be a really, really important point, which was almost completely lost. People didn't understand the democratic imperative of the national curriculum We have to put together in our schools day by day <coughs> model communities in which young people can grow and develop and be nurtured in which we push them out at the other end to play a useful part in the world, we have to put together those communities in in which young people can understand the world and change it for the better, for life, for the better. And the curriculum is the key to that. So, leave us alone, as, as Tim said. Change the curriculum rarely, but think really hard about what we need of teachers. And really hard about
1: the way we measure schools in order for us to be given the time to actually get this right. Thank you, Caroline. Um, Before I ask the panel um, a few searching I hope, probing questions, I just want to check the temperature of the room. How many powerful knowledge skeptics are there tonight out there? Don't be shy. Hands up. Very few. So most of you are got the script, know the theme tune. You're all on board, with it. yeah? Right. Okay. So um, I suppose some of the some of the some of the most searching criticism, well, maybe searching or not, but some of the most some of the most common criticism, which um, some uh, actually both Tim and uh, Michael alluded to, was that actually uh, knowledge, yes, it's essential, but it's not sufficient. And the bakery came out with something this week, basically saying the same thing. What do you say to that? You know, that's not the problem. It's not, it's not, it's too limited as an
2: aid when you're talking about a prison. I think the problem with that criticism is the narrowness of the interpretation of knowledge it's about knowledge. It isn't just something there which has to be learned. It's actually itself and so forth. So it is actually the basis of the kind of democracy that in fact uh, uh, Carolyn uh, was speaking about and the kind of respect for authority that any school needs. So many of the things that in fact people uh, uh, you know say not enough are because they've already boxed knowledge into a little section which in fact is, is mistaken. So that would be my guess. So, do you want to Yeah, I mean, the, the Many of the
3: criticisms of the kind that you describe, um, when you probe the, um, the understanding of knowledge that the critic has, they have a very impoverished concept. So, so when we talk about knowledge in the educational community, and in the, if you analyze effective performance in respect to things like medics, the, the knowledge is intertwined into performance in, in a way which, which is completely contrary to this this incredibly impoverished view of knowledge as a series of discrete things to be remembered. Um, And uh, it's clear when we, by other educational systems, they often paint really extreme caricatures of of other systems Um, focused exclusively on rote learning alone, um, focused only on articulating traditional knowledge. So basically Um,
1: the critics have got it wrong, they just don't understand what it's about. Or how broad it is. You, have, you have to look at the,
3: the the understanding of the idea of knowledge that many of the critics of the powerful knowledge thesis possess. And, and when you look at that, you find something very wanting and very at odds with both our international understandings and modern epistemic
1: theory. And uh, you mentioned that actually you're not anti-skills; so it's a false debate. So we won't pursue that yet. But um, Caroline, another question that is often asked. Of um, powerful knowledge is actually the disciples' creativity. The, the, the powerful knowledge curriculum does not pay due attention to the creative disciplines in school. And you mentioned that your, your school was very uh, proud of its crazy heritage, and I guess, what, what would you say to that? Well, that's just completely
4: wrong. No, tell me You can equivocate if you like. <coughs> two parts toe an uh, answer. Firstly, the, the academic disciplines that will be characterised as being part of the arts, as being part of creativity, okay. have a hugely important knowledge base. And actually, a good art teacher, a good drama teacher, a good dance teacher, will be someone who is self-consciously always learning about what they do and therefore often much be- better at transmitting a love of learning and a lot of little knowledge than someone who hasn't looked at what's happening in the world of maths since they are tw- since they were 21. So there's that, and then there are the other things, which we used to call the hidden curriculum, didn't we, when I was a lot that's land, and that's to, and that's to, to do with the, um, the, the personal characteristics that schools develop in young people. So of course knowledge isn't the whole story, but we do feel the stuff in our communities in many cases. Politicians don't know enough about schools to know what else it is that we do apart from
3: teach people in classrooms. Okay. Mm. I just said, I mean, I can be a fantastically creative liver surgeon. Um, I know nothing about it, but I could be extremely creative. (laughs) And um, it's really important that when you look at what we define as creative activity by (coughs) young people, what they're doing is finding patterns, structures, they're gaining insights. To do that, they need to marshal things, they need to know things the level of technique at the level of knowledge. And that, that this again a false opposition between the acquisition of powerful knowledge and creative activity in schools.
1: And clearly you've been involved in the new curriculum team in particular and part. but do you think there's enough powerful knowledge in there? The new curriculum? <laughs> what, sorry, I mean? The new curriculum, the one that the the, 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 the government is rolling at the moment, is there's enough attention and
2: uh, paid to it, powerful knowledge. I think, um, uh, I'm not not sure that you can use this as a kind of for actually identify. I don't don't think that's uh, useful. What what, what was striking me when I was, well, two things striking me my colleagues uh, respond to. One was that we need to give some thought to how the subject specialists are educated in their subjects before they come to school and are they, do they have the the, the, the knowledge of what that's, how that subject relates to the world, how how it progresses, a whole lot of things that, that they often are ill prepared uh, to engage with and which in fact pupils could engage with and I think that is an issue which we do not seriously address um, the, the And uh, I think that the the issue about um, skill, I mean, creativity, I'm very worried about the fashion for creativity, deeply worried. I think it's part of uh, something that, in fact, Christine, you've written about. It's part of this session, and I'm not sure where it comes from, for genericism, for actually thinking that there are these sort of uh, generic capabilities that can be abstracted from any content and then mapped back on yeah. to the content at all. I think it's very, very misleading because there's no creativity that actually develops in that kind of way at all. In a sense, you, you actually have to you have to stay with the content, particular thing, whether it's history or physics, whatever it is. And when, you, when you, when you do. Or oh, dance or music. Or dance or music, exactly. And um, uh, the, the um, I mean, I was hearing, I remember, uh, Kevin will remember, a really, really interesting talk which worried me about art education, what's happening to art teaching in schools. I know absolutely nothing about art teaching in schools, but what I gathered was that, in a sense, that gradually there was a shift from thinking to doing. That, in fact, the emphasis was increasingly on what the student did and not putting the student in any kind of relationship to art in the broader sense of where it's come from and why and so forth and and therefore they were ill-equipped to actually move into professional or an academic or whatever, or our world as well. So I do think that, I think that the genericism is, it, it is something that we have to find a way of tackling, because when it comes to it, it's actually a form of accountability, not a form uh, of, of, of curriculum and knowledge. It, 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 it's a neat form of accountability. I think I think some of the fear about,
1: uh, the, especially from those subjects that feel that they are being squeezed out of the curriculum by the UK and by this kind of gender, is that uh, there is a priority, it's a hierarchy of subjects, and that the less regarded subjects, uh, because they're less regarded, will be least
2: well-taught. That's a perfectly valid fear. That's a fear, but that's a different kind of thing. That's a completely different issue. That's an issue that I think is related to the misplaced view that schools are about preparing people for an economy. And that somehow or other STEM is the solution to the economy. And the more you focus on STEM in the way, you do the lesson. will actually do what you want it to do. It? So I think, in a sense, uh, I, I think we have to kind of, I mean, the interesting thing, there's a brilliant uh, a book by Critical of Human Capital Theory, which is where this comes from. And he's saying, actually, the Human Capital Theory uh, is, is actually as the Marxists, that both of them actually see schools as sort of sources for an economy, one that the economy will collapse and one that it will grow. And there's no focus on, oh, in a sense, what are the schools for? Mm.
4: To, to me, the no. issue is, is, is that um, the smallest objects, if you want to call them that, aren't being pushed out by anything other than that, is insufficiently understood. So the fear of accountability and whichever whim will be measured by the next year is what drives a cautious. Preserves compulsory languages or compulsory drama in that circumstance.
1: So, what you would advise him? You would well, I'm not bound to a counter Yeah, questions.
3: I'm going to take that back to your original question, which ah. is, what do we think we've got with, uh, with the national curriculum mm-hmm. when was implemented? Um, yes. And mm-hmm. I said many times not to confuse the national curriculum in the school curriculum. So, in the school yeah. curriculum can yeah, be exciting, <laughs> motivating, chock full of the context which will motivate motivate mm-hmm. particular children in particular circumstances. But I think Michael's analysis shows that you, you, you include a description of that in a national curriculum at your power, yeah, yeah. and that's really very, very important. Um, the, the other thing which is an implication which you know, Michael and I have not unpacked perhaps enough that we're, we're doing a lot of work on in Cambridge is the extent to which we are talking about foundational knowledge. We're not talking about presenting the totality of human knowledge to, to a child immediately. There are certainly foundational building blocks which are very challenging, which young people have to acquire and build one on the other as they move towards more elaborated knowledge in discipline areas. And some of these, such as an understanding of energy, all the evidence about young young people, aged 10 and 12, they find these things unbelievably difficult. And and the learning is often full of misconceptions. So the idea of foundational building blocks is absolutely fundamental to a curriculum. And I do hope that that's something which we paid a great deal of attention to in the in the formulation of the, the curriculum which has now been implemented.
1: Okay, there's another area I want to explore which is about um, uh, misguided disciples, uh, people who have got an incomplete or wrong view of any kind of any kind of new thinking or, or movement. So you know you start with a march and do before you know it you need to, Anabaptists, you know, people get the wrong <laughs> idea. People, people. People, just just take get, get the wrong idea. Um, so, for instance, uh, Hirsch with obviously you're thinking you're thinking as right a um, uh, Do you think his work and your work has been misrepresented? And if so, what are the most common
2: ways of misrepresented? Um, I just start by I'm, I'm, I didn't manage to come to the talks that Hirsch gave when he was here. Yeah. Um, but uh, I did read a little bit about his um, earlier history in the democratic movement in the United States. And whatever else you'd say about her, he's not a kind of classic conservative. No. Uh, no. Uh, no. Uh, and um, it's worth saying. That's, uh, that, that's uh, not. Um, I. I Mike, um, well,
1: well, let me just. Uh, this, this, he was interviewed a few months ago by the yes, I don't know if you saw this. So he was basically asked about um, pedagogy and basically uh, uh, what he thought about how uh, should, how children should talk. And he basically said, um, he, was, he was agnostic. There, was a, there, there are people, quote, "a traditional teaching of knowledge, not progressive methods to foster a child's self-esteem." And he said in
5: response to that, into kids' by, as if they were learning the Koran. The truth is, you can have a defined curriculum and use all
1: sorts of progressive methods to deliver it. If the kids get the results and you can prove it works, then do it. Mm-hmm. Who cares how we deliver it, as long as it gets into the minds of the children and they're happy. Do you agree?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> Explain why. Uh, I just like to say, very briefly two things. One, to echo and emphasise the point that, uh, that that Tim made about the relationship between a national curriculum uh, specify and the <coughs> very often schools and I to what Karen was saying and I was very struck by it when I think I heard your general secretary's idea about different types of schools if, you're a, if you are a confident school then you won't treat the national curriculum as if it's your curriculum you will actually have a curriculum for interpreting the national curriculum. But if you're not a competent school, the only thing you do is to try and follow it as if it was, and I think that that's, uh, um, and um, I, th- I think that uh, this guy I mean, uh, the other thing I want to say is that- Why, why is Hirsch wrong? Why, is, why, you, why, well, you think, why do you think Hirsch is wrong? No, I don't why think, uh, why I think Hirsch is wrong is, is, is because I actually think that um, the pedagogy is, a distinct, it's obviously not separate from curriculum, mm. but it is actually a very important practice, theoretical practice. We don't do all that much teaching research on it, and it, yeah, it, no, to be able to say it, it doesn't matter how they teach, yeah, wrong with the curriculum, right. I think actually is misguided, because people are not going to take pedagogy seriously. I get worried I mean, I think there's some truth in, in, in the uh, go yeah. but in a sense that some people took pedagogy so seriously they forgot about the curriculum. Mm. And the difficulty is holding the two, I think, because if you get, if you get focus only on the curriculum and forget about pedagogy, you just, you, you just get memorization, you go to teaching. If you get only pedagogy, you get happy days, but you don't learn anything. Um, and, and, and I think holding the two I just think we have to accept the fact that it's,
5: first of all, that it's really difficult, and secondly, that we've got to trust our teachers more if we want them to act take on the difficult things. Because we trust other professions, but
2: we don't, aren't very good at trusting teachers. Can I just ask you a question? Can can yeah. can, can I I, 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 I'd like to make two points, and I hope they're
4: not too hand t- 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 I don't think they, they're, they're, they are. Um, it's quite mm-hmm. tricky in schools. To define for a teaching staff what curriculum thinking actually is because teachers by necessity conflate the national curriculum with the school curriculum but most of all the example specification so that's what drives the curriculum content and we do it backwards and we say let's strip everything out let's let's let 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 look at what we want to teach from yes have a look it. this is really important we've got no pres- presuppositions you can teach what, what you like and the first thing that a head of department does is to reach for the A-level specification and work backwards from there. So that's a really issue, and that's to do with accountability. There's nothing wrong There's nothing wrong with schooling that can't be laid at the door of crass accountability in, the member, in the measures. And the other misconception, which no one's touched on yet, but Michael said that we, that we weren't goals, and that's very true, um, is that powerful knowledge is not the same as the back. There's a there's there's, a, there's I think a mistake being made that the EBAC that if you cover the EBAC well then you've got another knowledge of debate right and they are actually two different
1: things Tim do you agree with that?
3: Yes and I want to go back also to the history of Firmish. Yeah. Um, and I'll come back to the EBAC issues I think and about how you steer education systems um, so I mean anybody interested in 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 Edie Hirsch, just just read his history. I mean, he, and he was, he became interested in all this stuff, which is a, a real diversion from the work that he was doing for many, many years, because he was really bothered about the fact that that certain groups, particularly young black kids in the states, young black males, just just couldn't have access to the kind of literature that he was teaching them because they just didn't understand the, the They had no knowledge of the signals, the cultural. Signifies in the text and so on and so on. It was a, it was a profoundly um, progressive and, and uh, uh, analysis based on equity. So you know, forget all this. It was indeed appropriated then by a whole series of groups, um, sometimes misrepresented, but certainly his origins are, are very interesting. It's worth our reading about. It. And the fact that he says he's agnostic about pedagogy, um I mean that is just. Uh, I think probably a defensive statement by. Well, uh, his words. Yeah, I know, but not pe- you know. In this kind of yeah. setting, you say you can be agnostic about it because you just don't want to talk about the detail of it and don't want to be vulnerable about the. Well, you just the, said that, the to say
1: that pedagogy is highly variable. It's very context dependent. Absolutely. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. good. That's good. Okay. So so uh,
3: and the key thing there is: would I argue that that you know anything goes in terms of pedagogy? No. And um, Lucy Creelman who's, who's in the audience. has done some really lovely work comparing different systems. And there's a great. There's a great exchange in one of one of the chapters where you know, a Canadian kid is, is, is the comment on doing the maths wrong is you've been terribly creative. Okay. Whereas in, in a in a, in a Confucian setting it's that's not right. You need to put more effort into understanding it. Okay? And that is very liberating, that second view, because it means that with more effort that mathematics is accessible to anyone. You know, which which is Exactly what Michael was actually saying about a truly liberatory curriculum and liberatory pedagogy. Really, really important. So I think some, some forms of pedagogy are tied very much to models of learning which are antithetical to the powerful knowledge thesis. Yeah, and that, that's
6: a real
1: problem. Well, I mean, let's move on to talk a little bit before I um, expand the discussion of the audience about the politics. Uh, because uh, Robin Alexander has said, for instance, among others, uh, that uh, a lot of this n- um, drive towards uh, um, a powerful knowledge curriculum is based on what he called piece of panic. That basically you you look at all these high-performing jurisdictions, uh, Singapore, China, and uh, you know, and you, and you get the wrong lessons from them. Basically, ah, it's because they've got a knowledge, uh, knowledge base, powerful knowledge of curriculum, and actually, it's not to do with cultural factors. And it's nothing to do with you know I paraphrase madly by saying it's a surfeit of typing others. It's nothing to do with it's nothing to do with uh, or a little to do with uh, ever powerful language. What do you say yeah. to that? Obvious. Actually, let's get to my level. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I
2: mean, Roman Alexander doesn't like being challenged too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he thinks he's king of primary education, and uh, he's certainly the leading. Uh, Surgery in that field, but uh, and therefore I can understand it. he feels a bit upset. I've never met him, so it's not really a puzzle thing, uh, but nevertheless, it does strike me. I mean, one of the things that I've uh, always been, and I'd love to do some proper research on this, I've always been puzzled by it, is that, in fact, the enormous differences between the private and state primary curriculum from the of 5 but in fact, the, the, uh, this, the private primary curriculum, which, as you know, is called, they're schools, they actually see no reason why we shouldn't engage pupils with subjects from the age of six or seven, uh, or even earlier. And, uh, whereas, and that's been part of their history for obvious practical reasons, not that they've had any great fear of anything, but they are preparing people for a common entrance examination. Get to the public school and get their kids in, because if they don't, they won't recruit next time. So they're, you know, it's, it's <coughs> wonderful about them, but it is just true. Uh, but I do think that it does make me wonder, you know, the history of why the, uh, the primary education for the, for the majority, the sort of mass. Actually, actually, postponed access to knowledge, and um, I, I, I find it a very unresearched, indeed, uh, but in a sense, um, a- area. And um, I just, I just raise it. I, I think that I, I mean, I'm not. I have no particular brief uh, uh, I don't know, gl- global explanations like in relation to Pisa I mean, I, the relationship between the knowledge and curriculum in PISA seem to be tangential given the type of tests, but that's a separate issue. I mean, that that in fact, uh, you would train them in generic skills if you wanted them to do well at PISA. Uh, And nobody is in fact saying that. Um, I think that, um, uh, so, I mean, I came to this quite, uh, you know, quite, I came to this from two quite different groups. Academic, not political, and not in a sense I came to. It partly from the work I was doing in the 90s on vocational education, because what absolutely hit me was that, in fact, unlike in my journey, in fact, as soon as you go up towards a vocational course here, it's assumed that you don't need to think. It's assumed that you only do and the competence model is developed. And that's what we had from MBQs and a slightly more liberal version of CMBQs, GMBQs, and so from That was where I started, I think. And the other, the other part, the other factor, and, and trying to actually say, well, you know, what's the knowledge of a vocation? I mean, if it's vocational education, then it must have a core knowledge component. The other, the other thing that, uh, the other part that influenced me enormously, I've talked a little bit to Bill about it. But it was in fact the experience of being a consultant in South Africa in the 1990s and actually uh, seeing what happened when they tried to introduce a broad-based outcomes curriculum that was democratic and you couldn't take issue with it but in fact it was completely useless for the teachers. They didn't know what to do with it um, because there was no knowledge specification in that curriculum at all and um, that, in a sense it was hardly an advance on apartheid, although politically it was so that, so that
1: I'm just uh, No, 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 it's fine I mean, uh, the sadly absent and missed uh, Professor Alexander Tim also goes on that uh, points out that uh, essential knowledge uh, in key subject, most national curriculums are based on essential knowledge in key subjects basket cases and successes alike so signing up to, to, to uh, powerful knowledge or things like that uh, what Michael calls curricular justice, I think, is, 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 isn't, isn't, impo- isn't so important as the conditions and practices which the curriculum can be delivered. Is he right?
3: On that, I would agree very much with the kind of drift of that that uh, analysis. But th- there is another nuance around it, uh, around um, Robin's analysis, which I do take some exception to. I mean, it, it is absolutely critical, as he says, to understand the, the cultural characteristics and setting of education and and it explains a lot about the difference between different systems and uh, and the way in which learning unfolds. But I I want culture to be more than just an object of curiosity for researchers undertaking transnational analysis. Unlike Robin, I think that the the idea of uh, uh, deliberately making the culture in your school an object of policy and management is, is really critical and that we can learn from the cultural, uh, uh, the form of culture in schools in other national settings for the type of culture and expectations we have in our own schools in England. And I, I argue a, a sense for far more attention than has been paid to
1: culture in the past. Okay, and uh, Michael, especially given your, given your background on, on the left, I want to ask you, why do you think has seen this territory uh, why is it why is powerful knowledge uh, been abandoned
2: to the right I've asked myself that question many times and uh, I have lost friends and uh, colleagues um, good friends who I have a lot of affection and respect for who have taken a totally opposite view to and it's been a painful experience to me very, very And uh, um, I certainly wouldn't want to generalise too much from the small expression that I have. I mean, I think that there is a kind of uh, romanticism on the left, which basically uh, thinks that at some point or other, the uh, capitalism will collapse and that therefore we don't need to think about what happens on the way there. Um, now, capitalism has not shown a lot of
5: likelihood
2: of doing that. It's changed and all kinds of things, but I think that's that's part of it. I'm very, very taken by, some of you read Paul Mason's new book on post-capitalism. Uh, if, if you haven't read it, it's a riveting good read. You might not agree with it, but it's a riveting good read. One of the things he does mention at every and, and, and you know it's braver than this at, at, every, at every point where the working class looked as though they were becoming powerful they ducked out and went for just went for compromise that in fact there was you know that in a sense Marx got that completely wrong uh, actually sadly I mean, or not or whatever you think, like to think But um, that so that's a factor, Um, and I'm um, sure the bench of ex will agree. (laughs) Yeah, they would. They would agree. You see, yeah, they're the only ones. uh, So um, I think uh, obviously it's unfair to label the left as a whole. But um, I think it was a. I think people have spent. We may get a difference in the young, new. I don't know, a, a, a younger left. But people have spent a long time, let me put it, sorry, let me put it on the People have been, people on the left have basically seen their identities as critics, as critics of a system that in fact is unfair. And nobody would disagree with the fact that we have an unfair, unequal system. But they, uh, and the idea that we might be able to come up with something that was not just a criticism but an alternative was actually too much they, they couldn't make that step, or to put it crudely in a slight throw-off, excuse me, they're in too much
5: Foucault.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, I'd like to uh, put, put a bit of context behind this business of why the left is in the position that it is, and speaking as a socialist and a feminist, I would just like to plant my holes firmly there. Um, left-wing teachers have often been um, attracted to and very committed to and done long-servicing very difficult schools in difficult areas. And that's really important to recognise that. Now, Rob Cole from Durham University can't be um, persuaded to say much that's very clear that a school can translate into
7: major action. And I'm absolutely not criticising him. I
1: think that's
7: what's right.
4: What he does say, what he does say, and, 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 and what, 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 what he did say, and I educated all three of his kids ch- 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 <laughs> Incidentally, is that children learn things when they've got to think really hard. That's about all you will be committed to. Children learn when they've got to think really hard. Now. If you are teaching in an area, historically, where the link between education and any kind of success in life is hard to see, well then, it's really hard to overcome the natural adolescent reluctance to think really hard. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if you are simultaneously being, prese- be, be, being pressed to put results up like that, you've got, to, you've got to do things in which adolescents can not really have to think really hard. And therefore the left became attached to qualifications and a way of teaching and specifications that didn't mean that children had to feel really hard because it's really hard work doing that. It's hard doing that. You've got to be a brilliant teacher to do that. And it gets wearing after 30 years. And so there's a context to understand, which is what I referred to earlier, which is that we underplay the importance of behaviour and community what you were talking about in terms of school culture in this, whole, in this whole powerful knowledge de debate,
1: it's really important so, you want to say something, then to mm-hmm.
3: so this issue of appropriation by particular political communities, I think is fascinating because if, if you go back to the discourse around the World Education Association in the 1920s and 1930s then what you've heard this evening is in those texts I mean, it was all about giving access to the curriculum of those who attended only certain institutions. And so it is... I've asked myself this question and asked a lot of people the same question and looked at a lot of literature. Where would I put my finger? I, would, I put my finger on a very odd mixture of, of post theory and um, and theory around uh, the structure of knowledge. So... And, and, and John White... Um, John's not here tonight, so it's unfair to talk about him, I guess. But you know, John, Robin Coe, sorry, Robin Alexander, <laughs> uh, <don't>, <laughs> who trashed the ball.
8: Continue So, lack of equity
3: in the social relations which give rise to particular knowledge is not a basis for criticising the content of that knowledge, and it's been terribly, terribly confused. You know, to, 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 talk around, to talk about bourgeois knowledge, and it's legitimate because you know, many of our great natural scientists during the, the 17th and 18th century were incredibly privileged individuals, leading incredibly, incredibly, privileged lives. But, you know, 240 volts really hurts. You know, that's yeah, just yeah. the way it is. You know, resistance behaves the way it wants to behave. It is powerful knowledge, and if you don't have it, it, it actually is highly predictive of bad life outcomes.
2: There was just one point which I think Carolyn uh, touched on and I will just to say again from the point of view of the left uh, and that was, and I, I think my experience in South Africa was quite a, helped me in learning this that in fact um, we can be democratic about access but the actual activity of teaching is not a democratic one uh, it's one between somebody who knows and somebody who doesn't know but wants to know. And that there's an authoritarian, not authoritarian, authority relationship of a particular kind. And I think that is tricky For if you are a Democrat. You know, you, if you're a, a, on the left, you go for palafrey lovely man, and great and learns a lot, but not always treated very accurately. But, um, you know... He gives you a feeling that, in a sense, that if you want democracy, you have a democratic system. Whereas actually, uh, the pedagogy in the school is not going to be a democracy in the process. And I think that was something that the left found extremely difficult. And I went through that myself, so I can speak. You know, I remember. I mean, I thought when I read Pedagogy of the Oppressed, I thought it was the most wonderful book I'd ever read. But that was a long time ago. <laughs> and, and, and Gabriel
3: Alasara. in in Real Finnish Lessons, people miss this often because they they read over it, he quotes Hannah Arendt in The Crisis of Education, 1954, in Hannah Arendt's position in Liberatory Politics, very interesting, quote, the problem of education in the modern world lies in the fact that by its very nature it cannot forego either authority or tradition, and yet must proceed in a world that is neither structured by authority nor held together by tradition. So it's a brilliant point.
1: Well, with that, let me um, ask, the or- ask the audience. I've it on enough. Questions? Yes, the lady there. Um, I think there's a mark <coughs> just behind you. Um, I think you, all three presenters, for some fascinating presentations. Carolyn, you mentioned
7: uh, that one of the enormous problems uh, in curriculum planning in schools is that the growing zone for tracking back from assessment objectives. Yes. I imagine that that is curriculum planning um, and uh, I strongly agree that I think there's many, many schools where you you find people proudly present to you that your year sevens can answer a four mark describe answer and a six mark explained answer and they're busy doing that for five years because these proxy genres that have been invented for GCSE are deemed to be the curriculum. Now you mentioned accountability culture and laid a lot of at the door of the accountability culture. Um, well maybe but how far is the problem also a lack of knowledge in schools, in teachers and in senior leaders about curriculum, about the relationship between the domain, the curriculum and the test, so that we don't necessarily have capacity in, in our collective professional knowledge to think
4: about curriculum. Yeah. Okay. okay, yes, absolutely. Um, where shall I start? Um, it's really hard if you set aside a training day, for example, for people to sit in their departments and think about the curriculum and what should be in it, what they, should, what they want to teach in a dream world. You've almost got to confiscate any kind of written information from the examples because mm. otherwise they just won't think about it, they just won't think about it. I have a question which I ask at interview, um, towards the end of the, of the, in the, in the interview. I say to, to teachers, what are you reading at the moment? And if they can give me a reasonable answer, even if it's, you know, a children's book to their six, <coughs> or, d- 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 or detective fiction, or the latest thing about their own subject, those are all better answers than I'm really reading about K-Stage 3 life after, le- after the levels. I don't want to know that. I really don't want to know that. I want to know what they're doing to understand their subject better and to keep their knowledge levels up. And the third problem... Um, is to do with the fact that some of the brightest and the best young teachers now have absolutely no conception of what designing your own curriculum is. And actually, I say young teachers, I am by no means a spring chicken, and yet... Oh, I'd hear the cries of, oh, show, show, in But, but yet, I, I was only enabled to carry on thinking about the curriculum and thinking about what I wanted to teach because I was uh, an RE specialist. So I could invent it for myself everywhere I went. Mm. Whereas it's almost gone, it's a, it's a skill that needs to be retaught, and we haven't, been, we haven't got time in school to re-teach re-te- it.
3: When we, um, well, you and I have discussed history, I was with some physicists recently. I mean, these are leading physicists from a you know, leading research laboratory in Cambridge. And they were going through the A-level syllabus for physics, and they said, don't need that, don't need that, don't need that, don't need that. Yeah, need that, don't need that, don't need that. The point is that, that yes, absolutely, our qualifications drive the curriculum in, a, in exactly the reductive way you describe The accountability ad- that's adversely affected curriculum development And the problem is that what we then put into qualifications is not necessarily mobilised by the same kind of approach to path of knowledge which Michael's actually advocating. So in Cambridge Assessment we develop qualifications. We always emphasise the constructs. What are the constructs and how do they help somebody progress in education onto the next stage or into society and so on? And... Unfortunately, our qualifications in many cases have been appropriated by specifications which incorporate things of very dubious provenance,
1: of the kind that you described. In okay. terms of those proxy genres. Okay. More questions. There's uh, uh, Sir John Dumford there, that, that, or been regal. very <laughs> talented. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, uh, thank you very much indeed for
6: those presentations. I'm. Um, really wearing my hat tonight as Chair of Whole Education. Um, and, and so I want to bring a note of optimism to the proceedings, because Whole Education is a network of schools that really is exploring that space between the size of the school curriculum and the size of the thing you've got to do that's driven by accountability and yeah. different syllabuses and so on. And they're recognising that in that space, and I'm, I'm partly talking to, because of my work at around disadvantaged kids you agree. But I think it is particularly important for disadvantaged children to have a both and yes. curriculum a rigorous curriculum yes but a curriculum that embraces both knowledge and skills and personal qualities yes, sure. and plans the development of those in, 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 a plan, uh, in a planned way and actually primary schools are better at doing that in secondary schools because of the way they're structured in secondary schools you've got child having 14 different teachers, you've got to really plan it very carefully, so my question to the, to the panel is, do you accept that if you regard the, um, uh, the, the pedagogy, if you like, of uh, this both-hand curricula as a warp and a weft, you don't give up teaching knowledge while you teach skills, so you map the teaching of the skills onto the teaching of knowledge and then you can do that.
2: That's my thought. Well, I mean, it's May sound a slightly theoretical answer. It's a long time since I taught. I used to teach chemistry many years ago, secondary school. And and, um, I'm deeply convinced that, uh, I mean, I think the, the, the issue is important, but in fact, the separation is misplaced because there are no skills that are knowledge free. There is not anything that one could do worthwhile in a school that in fact is teaching skills. And, in, and similarly, there's no knowledge you can acquire without skills. I mean, in a sense, the, the, the divide is the problem. And in a sense, we have to go, once we get beyond it, we start thinking about different fields, which might, you know, whether they are um, design and technology or... Uh, Greek, ancient Greek, or whatever it is, we can see them. We can see knowledge and skills in relation to whatever the field is, and I think that's the step I would want you to, to take. I really would, and I don't think we would necessarily
5: agree, disagree
2: uh, at all on that. But I think, I think that it, it's um, uh, it, it goes back to the the the, the, the I think the totally misplaced notion because we schools don't do that anymore. And they even, if they did, that somehow other they're preparing for the labour market. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there isn't a labour market for young people now. There in second part-time, occasional work, zero out, There isn't a labour market. You're preparing people for a very uncertain future, and they, and somehow that, the, and therefore the skills again. But the knowledge not that doesn't actually take skills seriously, I think will fail itself. So, I mean, you know, that, that's my response. Is yes. anybody you've got a sceptical question?
5: <laughs> oh, yes, gentlemen there. on that like, sceptical point. Going to I, I think that um, Hirsch was a good bloke, and I think Michael Gove uh, was a good bloke. But the, the sort of, like, problem that I have is that the cultural argument has never really been won for powerful knowledge. Political arguments never really been won. So, you have this situation where the, the Tory government have created these mechanisms within schools. But the way that it works itself out at the face, no matter what way you spin it, at the end of the day, I think Carlin's right that what it's reduced to effectively is the teachers teaching to the test because they feel under pressure with the assessment measures. And so, that leads me to a question might be a ridiculous question, but when you look at what a school's for, is there not a disjuncture between the original aim of rural allocation? Where we tie we have these exams to try to get them to particular job, universities, etc., and the Matthew Arnold idea of the best being thought and said and known? And is it possible to create an education system where we can teach the best that's thought and said and known without the the bizarre pressure with a thing that's supposed to measure that adequately in the exam actually bastardizes the process of passing on that knowledge? So basically, how can you have a
1: powerful knowledge curriculum if teachers feel powerless? Okay. Yes. Okay. Right. What was that? <laughs> I, I don't
4: know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because... That made me muse about uh, where we've got to, for example, with key stage three. So, everyone's using this Gatsby phrase, might have to look the levels of what we're meant to be doing with key stage three. Um, and so, we had a fancy system where the departments are setting up the threshold concepts that move children from one of the learning to the next, and that's how we'll measure what, what you know the kind of success that's happening. But if you take your eye off teachers for a second, they go back to leveling (coughs) things. Because they think that will protect them against the wrath to come at the end of the year. And it's really difficult, it's a really difficult position to be in. We're not talking yet about teacher recruitment, and you see with teacher recruitment, (coughs) because everything that we want to do, relies on um, both uh, the three things clever, committed, and available teachers. So i I don't
1: know. <laughs> do did you,
3: did you have an answer, Tim? Well, I want to come back to John, actually, just, just briefly. I mean, I think in, in your both and, I you're to right, and it's, it's the and that I emphasised in a paper a while ago. The framework of knowledge, skills, and personal qualities, I mean, that's absolutely critical as an audit tool for any curriculum, whether it's in this country or anywhere else. And I think it, you have to ask in what balance do they exist, how are they distributed, and what instruments guarantee that they are delivered? And I think that's a really good way of looking at things. Um, and, it, and, and of course, over time, how you sequence acquisition as you move know, through those three pillars, as it were. mean, I don't think that necessarily implies very complex cross-curriculum approaches, actually, which are often typically unmanageable, either in the primary or in, in the secondary. Um, and, and the best way of illustrating that is, is reading. I mean reading is cross-curricular by its very nature. And there's nothing as narrowing as not being able to read. Um, you have to read some things. And you can look at the breadth of what, what people read. And, and and I want to go back to something I said that we haven't, haven't highlighted, Helena Bathsey's work on working memory. It is right that in certain settings and in, in certain certain national systems, and, and I think it is right in arms too, that kids should, should remember their times tables. They should be able to recall them automatically. Why? Because it frees up the working memory for higher analytical thinking. If you, if you haven't got those Automatically located in cognition, you have to work it out every time <laughs> and, and it prevents you from gaining access to the higher order work, which we know is critical in terms of real educational progression so John, yes, we should never lose sight of those three and we need to look at how
1: they are combined in, in well-designed curriculum and how they see them. okay, I think we 've got time for just two more questions, so I think uh, the lady there in the red. Um.
5: like it's works well in motivating children to want to, to learn, and it's um, big them want to gain knowledge, and I feel like it's something that should be implemented in schools, but it isn't implemented in all schools. Um, how do you feel about implementing social and emotional learning in schools?
2: Would you think it will work? Michael? I'm, I, I get uh, worried about the emphasis on emotional learning, because I think that in a sense, two, two reasons. One is that um, uh, not learning anything, if you are involved in it, is emotional. That uh, in fact, there isn't something separate called emotional learning. Uh, and I think that it actually uh, is often seen as a solution to kids who find it difficult to learn and therefore they may it may actually exaggerate the problems that they are in. Um, so um, uh, I, 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 think, I think it has to be addressed in a, in, a, in a way that actually looks at pedagogy as a whole and asks the what, questions about the relationship between the teacher and teacher and, and their classes uh, in, in that way, rather than something that's been hived out by an academic discipline, uh, like something like emotional intelligence as well as in ordinary intelligence. I, I, I am unhappy about that, the honestly.
4: I'd make one really quick comment about that. Uh, yes, it's really important, but you predicate a deficit model there. And um, Social and emotional um, aspects of learning ought to be dealt with by the way that a school runs and the way that a school cares for its students. It shouldn't have to be done separately.
1: Okay, final question. I'll go to two. Lady here and Martin
8: there. So, Martin, first one. Uh, you, Gerard. Um, I think one of the, for me, one of the most important things said tonight was said quite early, which was um, that if a national curriculum or a total score curriculum is designed appropriately, it ought to be one which is appropriate for all children and learners, and, and uh, this was passed by a, a bit. Uh, I'm assuming we are talking from early years at least to the end of lower secondary. Um, I, I think that this is, in terms of like practical policy directions, one of the most important things said tonight. Um, uh, and it's clearly off the radar. Um, how do we get it back on? I'm not exactly fit. So basically, no. i no. oh, a, a, a comprehensive <laughs> curriculum <laughs> okay. for all. Yeah. How do we? How do we? How do we restore one? Or actually, build one for the very first time. Fine. Okay. And uh, just.
1: Glad you. Right. Okay. And uh, lady here, you want a question? Yes. Oh, uh,
7: sorry. I think um, Karen and Tim touched on um, slightly. You mentioned how you would find it quite daunting, or some teachers find it daunting, to make a knowledge-based curriculum. And does that not boil down to teachers who are entering the, entering the profession having quite shoddy subject knowledge because it's not a priority in ITT? And I do think this is unachievable. I believe knowledge completely, but I think it's unachievable in ITT purely because university teachers have, uh, they're very, they very much kind of endorsed progressive ideals of education in their university practice, so we have a disjunct between teachers who believe in knowledge and university, trainers, university providers and trainers who want to produce teachers of really high social quality, but don't value knowledge explicitly as much as they value skills and pedagogy and behavior management.
1: Okay, so the matter few of being education
2: brought back onto the agenda and from say, what see. I, I, uh, yeah, I won't. I'd rather leave them um, to say something about future education. Yeah. Because, uh, but um, I'd, I'd just like to pick up on, if I've understood the point you make, I think that in a sense what you were saying was that in fact uh, you picked up on something which, I, I mean, we all I think agree that I said at the beginning was that in fact the, the debate must be about a knowledge, a part of a knowledge, curriculum for all people. And in fact, we haven't really examined that element of it as much as we should. And I think, uh, insofar as I've been involved in the path of knowledge, the debate, and writing and so forth, I think that that has been uh, n- neglected. The focus has been on what is this thing of rather than, for instance, the issue which I just touched on in, in, in my talk, if, you, if a film takes on... The issue of powerful knowledge seriously. It's Then got to ask, in fact, how are teachers in that practice in the classroom extending pupils' knowledge in what they do? How it's not just curriculum; it's actually it's actually focusing on, in a sense, and I think it it shifts it. To, it becomes a question about practice uh, and about criteria for good professional practice as much as it does about curriculum. And I think one, if we've made that shift, it would be quite an important step if I've understood you right. And I mean, that was why I was, I mean, so impressed with that email I got, because clearly, in some kind of way, they it's were- certainly about special needs. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, the Yes, the email, yeah. that the, they were trying to do this with kids who clearly, uh, that they were refusing to accept the categorisation of those people's Cambridge, OK. Uh, uh, shoddy
1: ITC.
4: Yeah, I think it's a bit unfair to lay that entirely at the door of the universities. Um, one goes shopping for a bright young thing to take on to the staff and you find yourself a bright young head of department with a Cambridge d- degree, perhaps, and then you discover, because that young person is in her late tw- 20s, um, that actually what that person knows is what they've been examined on during the course of their school life and not much else in between. Uh, and so I think that the tro- problem, one of the problems that we face is what we did to education for the last 20 years. So it's not that the universities are necessarily anti-knowledge and not understanding enough, it's that, um, it's that we've been producing people coming through schools who can pass tests but who don't know how to pursue knowledge for its own purposes for the rest of their lives. Thank you.
1: Um, sadly we've run out of time front is that over. there's uh, I'd like to thank um, uh, Michael and Tim and Carolyn. And also I'd also like to thank Aspel and uh, uh, the Policy Exchange for hosting this evening. Thank you all for attending on over a lot of wet Tuesday afternoon and hope uh, you have a good evening.